Welcome everyone to the Leadership Evolve podcast, where each week we dig up for knowledge and insight into the modern state of leadership. And through the conversations that we have with our guests, we really hope that we're providing the tools for you guys to lead a better life, not just at your work, but really at home as well. And that really goes down to the our overall view of leadership. And it's not just a skill set they utilize in the office, but a mindset that anyone can adopt. My guest this week is an award-winning author, speaker, and trainer. He was actually a trial lawyer for 22 years, and he transitioned to a peacemaker and a mediator. And we really dig into how he transitioned because it's, you know, both of them are at different ends of the spectrum. Um, he's also a co-founder of an award-winning Prison of Peace project uh, in which he essentially teaches murderers in maximum security prisons to be peacemakers and mediators as well. This is a fascinating uh, project that he's embarked on and, and really the impact he's having is, is quite tremendous. He has overall trained mediators across the world and he's handled 1,500 plus disputes. Uh, back in when he was a trial lawyer, uh, he was included in California's Lawyer Magazine as Attorney of the Year. Um, and he's written four books, the latest one entitled De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Overall, we had a fascinating conversation and I really just try to take away one thing from all the guests I have on here, but uh, with him I took a, a lot and I know you guys will as well. He really takes a scientific approach to uh, emotional intelligence and he really provided um, a different perspective on it that I have not heard before. So. I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you take something away from it. And uh, without further ado, further ado, please give it up for Doug Knoll. Well, I, I really appreciate your time and, and thank you so much for your flexibility. You know, when I first came up on your name, it was, it was so intriguing and right off the bat, and I'm sure you get this a lot, um, it's seeing that you started off your career as a lawyer and having that transition to a peacemaker. Um, right. I can't imagine the most polar opposite thing. So um, I would love to hear your story and then specifically your journey on how you went to a, a legal field and then how you transitioned into a, into a peacemaker. Sure. I, so I grew up in Southern California, uh, up, up in San Marino, about an hour from where you live, and uh, went back to, to school at Dartmouth College, came back to California, went to law school, and decided to move down here, to move, move from Sacramento, where I went to law school, down to Central California, where I live now. And I clerked for a judge for a year, and then I uh, became a young associate in a bankruptcy litigation firm. And I joined that firm in September of 1978, tried my first jury trial in November of 1978, and became a big-time trial lawyer. And that's what I did for 22 years. Along the way, I started studying the martial arts and eventually earned my second degree black belt in a northern Chinese animal style. And my teacher called me in after that and said, you're done here. You've got to go to learn Tai Chi because you're an asshole and you're aggressive. And, and, you know, you're going to hurt somebody. So I said, OK. So I started studying Tai Chi. And Tai Chi has two really interesting paradoxes. One is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Well, that did not compute well with me for a while. But I kept practicing and eventually uh, it started to seep into me. And one day, some years later, I was in a courtroom trying a case, cross-examining somebody, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I went out on a vacation, a river trip up in central Idaho, and spent the week in my raft thinking about how many people I had actually served as a trial lawyer. And I decided that I'd only served really five people out of hundreds of cases. And I said, you know, I don't want to go another 30 or 40 years and only serve 15 or 20 people. So I'm going to go find something else to do. Well, as it turns out, when I came back after that trip, I was driving down out of the mountains to my office and I heard a public service announcement on our local public radio station for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is the West Coast Mennonite University. And the Mennonites are one of the three traditional 
Protestant peace churches. Well, that intrigued me. And so I actually enrolled and the, the people there completely changed my view about litigation and law and human conflict. And I began to understand why I was so dissatisfied being a trial lawyer and why so many people <laughs> really didn't like lawyers that much. So I finished, I finished up my degree and then had a series of conversations with my partners and ultimately uh, it came to a head and I walked out. Uh, I was so disgusted and uh, I did everything I told my clients not to do. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have any capital raised. I gave a week's notice and walked away from a 22-year law practice and $10 million on the table. That is, ten, I put in the firm $10 million more than I'd taken out. And that's how wow. it started. And uh, I became a mediator and a peacemaker. And that's how the journey began. And it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Man, that's quite a journey. I want to I back up just a little bit. What was the initial source of passion or interest that got you into the legal field to begin with? Was it, was it your aggressiveness? Uh, was it the interest in, in battling people or debating? No, it was really um, developing my intellect. I really, I was an English lit major in college and I wanted, I didn't know, I didn't really have a burning desire to be a lawyer, but I did want to get a graduate degree that one could make, I could make a living at if I wanted to, but two would sharpen my mind even further. And law school is really good for that. At least in those days it was. And so, was your, oh, go ahead, please. Sorry. No, so that's why I went to law school. Gotcha. And your interest in martial arts, was it parallel to your interest in legal or how did that begin? <laughs> well, I'm a man of many interests. And uh, in that time period, which is the mid, let's see. Yeah, that was the mid 1980s. I was, I, uh, among other things, I'm a professional skier. I was a professional ski instructor. And I was working on my, the highest level of certification with the Professional Ski Instructors of America, which is a level three certification. It's an extremely difficult three-day exam, skiing exam. And I had taken the exam four, three times and I passed my technical and my teaching, but I had always failed the skiing part of it because the, mm -hmm. the, at that level, it's any, any turn, any speed, any condition, any slope. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got to be really good. And yeah. I... You know, I was I was a part-time skier, so I wasn't able to train as hard as a lot of people taking the exam. So I decided to start cross-training. This is before people even knew what cross-training was. And I thought, you know, if I get into martial arts training, maybe maybe that'll help me build up my strength and agility so that I can pass this stupid exam. And sure enough, it did. Um, I got sort of fully certified in 1986. So that's that's how I got into the martial arts. Yeah. Wow, it's it's. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, please. So, and I figured, you know, as I started starting the martial arts, I wanted some, I wanted something else that I could, you know, I was weight training and doing cardio and stuff like that, and I just wanted something else to to train. And the, the martial arts had always intrigued me, and I had uh, just just married, and my wife's uh, brother, my brother-in-law, was a second or third degree. And he was just this overweight guy. And I thought, you know, if somebody like him could become a black belt, I, I probably can too. Little did I know how much work was involved in it, but but I, that that didn't bother me. So that's how I started. And I, you know, like everything else I do, I, I just went fully into it. And I was working out twice a day for five years and trained really hard and learned a lot and eventually got my first degree. And then a couple of years later, I got my second degree. And as you mentioned initially in your story that if it wasn't for the martial arts and being introduced to Tai Chi, obviously you wouldn't have ultimately got the source of inspiration to transition into a mediator and peacemaker. I just think lately, I swear, I've been seeing these moments and these slight moments where they make such a big difference in people's lives, including my own. And it's just uh, it's so fascinating to explore how if you had passed, I wonder if you had passed that ski a training exam and, and you had no problem with thing. you got certified, would you have gone to martial arts? Maybe not. And if you had not gone there, would you have not got introduced to Tai Chi and then so on, so on. So it's just, uh, well, that, that's true. I mean, there are, and there are, it's interesting to see the cause and effect, but I also think that I would have, you know, I had a lot of, I was already being challenged as a lawyer. I was very good at what I did, but I was also tired of the fighting. You know, I'd fight with my clients over bills, fight with the opposition over the stuff that lawyers fight about, fight with my partners over money. 
I mean, it's just one long constant battle with no rest. And I just got tired of it. So I may not have become a peacemaker, but I would have done something different. Gotcha. I understand. Yeah, it definitely seems like it. Um, you, you're you uh, famous for um, claiming that you, you can calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less. I think myself, and I can speak for a lot of people, including my audience, that we would love to know that skill set to be able to do that. It can be utilized whether you go to a grocery store or, or at work. So I would love right. to hear how that, how that, how that can happen. So uh, it's based on neuroscience and uh, it, it is basically it's a three-step process. So when you're confronted by an angry person or any kind of upset person or a child, uh, it works beautifully with children. You're, you're going to do three things. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to ignore the words, whatever they're saying, you just have to ignore them. It's, not news, you've heard it all before, just ignore it. It's white noise. And that frees up your brain to do the next two steps. The second step is to read the emotional data fields of this upset person. And it turns out that our brains are hardwired to do that automatically. We're just not trained to pay attention because our society thinks emotions are bad and evil. So uh, so there's no skill training around this, but it turns out that we can do it and we can be extremely accurate. And then once you have read the emotional data fields and the emotions that the other person is experiencing are starting to flow into your consciousness, you simply reflect back those emotions with a simple use statement. So I'd say, Artie, I'd say something like, you're really angry. Uh, you're really pissed off. You feel disrespected. You don't feel listened to. You're really anxious. You feel betrayed and you're really sad. And, and you're a little bit lonely. And then I'm going to be looking for four things. I'm going to be looking for a nod of the head, some kind of verbal exclamation like, yeah, or exactly. I'm going to watch the shoulders drop and I'm going to watch for a deep sigh of relief. These are all involuntary relaxation responses that indicates that the emotional centers of the brain have deactivated, they've been inhibited, and the uh, right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is back online. The executive function of our brain is back online. and and those are the signs that, that demonstrate that happens. And this is all based on the work of neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman, who published a seminal study in 2007 about this stuff, brain scanning study. Really phenomenal. So that's it in a nutshell. And you can literally calm any angry person in less than 90 seconds. Typically, it takes about 30 to 45 seconds. And I'd say the, the worst thing you could do is tell someone to calm down or relax. Oh. And it's quick. <laughs> it seems like it because it's so counterintuitive, yet I catch myself and I know everyone else does too. It seems like the most jerk, knee-jerk reaction every time. And it just seems like it magnifies the situation. It does. Twice. And why is that exactly from a neuroscience what, perspective? What, you're, what, what happens is that we have been habituated to what's known as emotional invalidation. So telling somebody to be a different way. So, so for example, somebody's really angry and you say, calm down, you are invalidating their emotional experience. And all that does is escalate emotional reactivity in the emotional centers of the brain. And there are hundreds of invalidating statements. And we're, we're invalidated as children from the time we're 18 months, two years old. I mean, I'm sure this happened to you. You're two years old. You're out running around. You fall down. You scrape your knee. You start to cry. And what are you told? To shut up. Just Stop shut crying. Up. Be a man. <laughs> don't be a sissy. Don't be a girly girl. Real men don't cry. Mm -hmm. That's all abusive. Extraordinarily abusive. It's called emotional invalidation. It's what we're taught for, from our parents. And it was what they were taught. And th there are two reasons why we emotionally invalidate and why we do it unconsciously. The first is, it's what we were taught. So it's just a habituated response. Two, whenever we emotionally invalidate, we're trying to soothe our own anxiety around another person's emotional distress. Because unconsciously, our brains are saying, gee, if I can get you to stop feeling stuff, then I'm not going to feel anxious around your emotions, and that'll make me feel better. So I'm going to tell you to stop doing what you're doing so I'll feel better. Extremely selfish. But that's yeah. what happens. And, and as a result of emotional invalidation, 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional, which means that 96% of the people coming out of families are dysfunctional as, as adults to one degree or another. And it's why we have all the problems that we see today. And we've had for centuries, you know, you've got crime, addiction, 
Uh, Kaiser has done a huge longitudinal study showing that emotional abuse of this type in childhood leads to co comorbidity later in life, which means that if you've been emotionally abused in this way as a child, you have a 10 times more chance of dying of cancer or heart disease or diabetes, uh, much greater chance of addiction, antisocial behaviors, all this stuff, trauma. It all is caused by emotional abuse. And emotional invalidation is the, is the most pervasive, insidious form of emotional abuse. So the secret antidote to this is to emotionally validate through this process called affect labeling. Ignore the words, read the, read the emotions, reflect back the emotions with the use statement. And it has a completely opposite effect on the brain. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes emotional intelligence so challenging, from my perspective at least, is the inability to truly wrap your head around how the, the other person across from you is does not think the same way you do. And as I'm saying this, it's it's as much as I'm acknowledging it, it's something that I battle with on a daily basis. You know, at the end of the day, however I'm trying to uh, approach someone and trying not to try to validate them emotionally and, and trying to be aware of their emotions in every way possible. But at the end of the day, that's still my brain processing things the way it does it. And that person across from me is just processing it differently. Well, do you come across, yeah, let me, let me, you made some interesting statements there. First of all, you cannot learn emotional intelligence. So the whole, the whole idea of trying to learn emotional intelligence is crazy. Emotional intelligence is a test. It's a, it's a social intelligence test developed in the 1990s by Salovey and Meyer. Daniel Goleman took that stuff. He basically plagiarized their work and said that emotional, you can learn emotional intelligence and you can, and this is, and then he wrote a book, which became a bestseller, and he's built a whole industry and, and hundreds and hundreds of companies now teach him a claim that they teach emotional intelligence. Well, guess what? You can't learn emotional intelligence. What you can learn is emotional competency, which is emotional self, uh, emotional self awareness, emotional self regulation, and empathy. Those are skills you can learn. And uh, the other thing that's really interesting about emotional intelligence is if you talk to any person who claims to be an emotional intelligence trainer, ask them what their definition of emotion is. And they will not have the correct definition. They won't have the technically correct definition. And so, so it's, there's just a huge amount of pseudoscience around all of this. The truth of the matter is already that you simply have not been exposed to the right skills and the right knowledge that allows your brain to process other people's emotions accurately and quickly and efficiently. And these are skills that can be learned just like learning how to ride a bike. You just have to have a teacher who understands all of this and knows how to teach it. And unfortunately, there just aren't that many people out there that, that can do that yet. Um, our brains are hardwired for this. You know, evolution has been wonderful in how it has developed our brains. If, if you think about it, humans have only had the ability to have vocabulary and speech for 230,000 years. That's nothing. And for millions of years, humans have had to communicate. And so how do they communicate? They, they communicate non-verbally. And we have innate systems in our brains that evolved over millions of years that allow us to understand each other precisely and accurately. But with the advent of language, a lot of those skills have atrophied. And then you layer on top of that the fact that we've been lied to for 4,000 years. We've been told for 4,000 years that humans are rational and that emotions are bad. And, and this has persisted in philosophy and theology for for. for like I said, 4,000 years. And it turns out that's all wrong. It's a myth. It's a lie. Neuroscientists now tell us that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. In fact, we can't even be rational unless we're emotional first. And yet our whole educational system is based on the idea of training the task-focused system of the brain, the, the part of the brain that so does problem solving, to the exclusion of the social system, or what's known as the default mode system of the brain, which is all about how we connect with people. And we get no training in that. And somehow our society thinks that, well, our parents are responsible for that, our families are responsible for that, but 96% of all the families are emotionally dysfunctional. They can't teach anything. So all that happens is we get this, generation after generation, we have dysfunctional people coming out into the world and they're miserable. And there's just a lot of unhappiness because these skill, the proper skill sets are not being taught to children. So yes, you would struggle because you just haven't learned the proper skills. But and they're easy no, to learn. They're easy to learn. They're fast to learn. It's not a big deal. You just got to learn them. Yeah.
No, that I mean, that makes a lot of sense because it's I, I constantly come across situations where I feel like I'm failing from an emotional intelligence sure. perspective, even though I'm being aware. But what you're saying right now, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's just giving me a completely different perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, these are it's these are skills that are based on science, what we now how we now understand the brain to operate. It's they're replicable, duplicable and teachable. And in fact, I've taught these skills uh, to life inmates murderers in maximum security prisons, all the way to the senior analysts of the Congressional Budget Office, teaching them how to de-escalate members of Congress. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I really want to talk about your Prison of Peace project. Uh, first off, I mean, it's so amazing what you're doing from that regard. Uh, I would love to hear just top to bottom how that started. Uh, and then second, um, I just want to get your take on, you know, how does it feel being around uh, lifetime, you know, murders and criminals to that degree. And is, there's a sense of intimidation and just all of that. I'm just so curious about it. Right. So the project started in 2009 when my colleague, uh, Laurel Coffer, who's a mediator in Los Angeles, received a letter from a woman serving a life sentence uh, in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which happened to be an hour from where I live. And uh, that woman, Susan Russo, asked Laurel if Laurel would be willing to come into the prison and train the life, the women who are lifers to be peacemakers and mediators because they wanted to stop the violence because the, the staff was not, the staff were inciting violence. Guards were inciting violence. And it, it, <laughs> so we said, yeah, she called me uh, and said, what do you think? And I said, I think we should do this. So we, jumped through a whole bunch of hoops, but we finally started training our first group of women in April of, of uh, 2010. And it was a huge success. And today we are in 15 California prisons, 15 prisons in Greece, a prison in Connecticut. And before the pandemic, we had startups in Nairobi and also in Italy. Wow. And, and because of the pandemic, uh, we, in fact, starting next week in Los Angeles, uh, we will be videotaping our entire curriculum. So, and by the end of the year, the curriculum will be available to every prison in the world. And we'll be able to subtitle it in any language so that anybody who wants prison learn, train inmates how to be peacemakers and mediators uh, will have access to the, the curriculum. We've trained over 20,000. We or our trainers have trained over 20,000 inmates in these procedures and of the people that we've directly trained from what we know uh we don't we try to keep track of people when they're released but we've had we've heard of no reports of recidivism none of our people have reoffended and gone back into prison thousands and thousands of inmates wow that's an amazing statistics i, yeah. I get the i guess i I, see, I really see the value from the prison perspective and them trying to ultimately lower the violence from the prisoners perspective what what's in it for them how what is something that really appeals to them to say, you know what, I want to become a peacemaker and I want to go down this route? It's uh, That's a great question. And uh, I can only, I can't get into their minds, so I can only tell you what I've observed. And that is that mm -hmm. when we start a program in a prison on a yard, we have an, an hour, hour and 15 minute orientation. And typically most prison yards in California usually have between a thousand 2,000, well, not, usually not 2,000, you know, 1,000 inmates, let's say. Mm -hmm. And we maybe get 100, we'll get 10% of them in the room, 100 of them. And they're mm -hmm. just coming because they're bored and they don't know what prison of peace is. And so they don't know anything. So they're just coming because right. something new and different <laughs> to break up the mm -hmm. monotony. Yeah. And then we spend the hour and 15 minutes trying to scare them away. And we tell them how hard it is and how tough we are and how this is a really rigorous program and it's not a self-help program and it's all about service to others. And if you want to learn how to serve others, then this is great and you don't get any credit for it. And you don't get rack credit and you don't get, you know, it's just, I, we say there's just no incentive for you to do this, except if you want to help serve and create peace on the yard. Mm -hmm. And that typically in our first orientation, that w w narrows down the group to about 25. And then those 25 show up and now they're really curious. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them say, I don't care what you say. You're not scaring me away. <laughs> it's sort of a dare. I dare you, right? Yeah. Some of them, some of them just feel attracted to the idea without even knowing what it is, and the, the idea resonates with them. And those are the people that become our trainers, and it just resonates with them. And then once we train our first cohort, the word you know, the word spreads fast on these yards, and you know, 
you know, the sign-up list just grows astronomically. I mean, even in our very first training back in 2010, by the time we were into week six of a 12-week program, we had 300 women in a 3,000-woman prison signed up. 10% mm-hmm. of the women wanted prison of peace training within six weeks. We hadn't even completed the program yet. Once That's they amazing. learn, once they learn that this is a no BS, hardcore training program that will teach them skills uh, that will change their lives and change the lives of those around them, they get really interested really fast. And now, since we've been doing it for so long, the uh, California Parole Board uh, knows about Prison of Peace. And so when an inmate who's gone through Prison of Peace and has graduated goes up for a parole to get a parole date, if if he or she has the chronos in the file showing that they've gone through prison of peace, the pro board is going to cross-examine pretty heavily to see if they're walking their talk. But but all, all of the, our students report that because they've had our training, they handle the, the questions and everything the pro board asked them uh, perfectly. And and many, many, many of them have been released again with, and no reoffending. Man, that's that's a hell of a service you're providing. Kudos to you and your partner for doing that. And uh, I personally love. Uh, I'm a big, obviously, a leadership fan of being a leadership podcast, and I love right. how you guys focus so much on the first aspect being, hey, do you want to serve people? And I think, besides that being, you know, create them, uh, letting them be peacemakers and whatnot. I think you guys are creating leaders. Well, and, of course, and, and yeah. And, and- I mean, that's mediation is is one of the most difficult forms of leadership. I mean, you're intervening in a conflict that could lead to violence between two people. And your job is to get them to sit down, talk to each other and solve their problem mm-hmm. and, and de-escalate them and lead them through a problem solving process. So we start leadership training at the very beginning of our workshop. The very first workshop, they're starting to learn to be leader, group leaders. And then that process continues for a year until we finally certify them as mediators. And then if they go into training, it's three years of training to become a to become a trainer. And then obviously there's a lot of leadership training we give them along the way. I want to stick on the subject of leadership specifically for a bit. Uh, you know, with, with COVID happening and, and it's been a time where uh, I've been saying that leadership last year was put um, on the front page in terms of it being exposed. You know, there was a test for company CEOs and, and political leaders, whatnot, um, into really being tested in their leadership skills. And unfortunately, at least from my experience and from my peers, you know a lot of uh, company CEOs that just failed and, and their true colors were shown because numbers were down, everything was down, and you really saw, you know, how would they lead now? Um, now we're looking at a post-COVID world, but uh, I would love your take, you know, where do you see leadership right now in this modern world? And do you think it needs to be altered? Um, in this post-COVID environment in, in any way? Well, I, I, you know, the problem, the problem in, business, in the business world is that people, people, business people do not understand the difference between management and leadership. They never have, and they still don't. And they don't understand that you, we manage things. We manage production. We manage projects. We manage money. We manage schedules, we manage office buildings, but we do not manage people. The only thing you do with people is lead people. That's number one. And leadership, people who are in positions of so-called leadership do not get that. And the second thing that people don't understand is that leadership has three primary tasks, basically to provide focus, direction, and safety to a group, to cohere a group, to perform a task or to achieve a goal. And, it, and the leader's job is not to do the task, but to provide focus, direction, and safety so the group can perform the task. Leaders don't get that either. They've never studied that. They have no clue about it. And the reason for that is because most organizations are not willing to invest serious money in leadership training because they don't believe that they can show an ROI for that kind of training uh, on their balance sheets. And so they're unwilling to spend the money to train people how to be actual leaders. The only organization in the world that I know of that's really effective at training leaders is is the US military. They do a phenomenal job of training leaders from every level. And I mean, I would say 50 to 60% of all the training that people in the military get is, is leadership training. And I'm not a military vet myself, but I've read their stuff and studied their stuff and they get it. 
But you know something? You can't you can't go to a good business school and find a course on leadership. No, Be, and no, why no, is that? No, because no, professors, no. professors who are PhDs, um, it's a publish or perish rule, and they can only publish in the journals on quantitative, basic quantitative analysis. Yeah. I mean, the only person out there that's really written anything anything decent about leadership is Warren Bennis and Joan Goldsmith, is, is who I know. I know Joan really well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and but other otherwise, you see very few people writing about leadership, and those that do write about it talk about what they don't talk about how. In other words, there's very few people out there teaching. Well, how do you do focus? What is direction? What do you mean by psychological safety? How do you do that? Yeah, and it's sad to hear that the only when it comes to the situation of life and death, i.e., the U.S. military, is when you get uh, adequate and, and efficient leadership training. And I think it should. It's sad that it has to get to that point where where the stakes are that high, um, where they're teaching leadership. But uh, you know, the the issue that I have that I always see is leadership for the most part and whether they're doing it perfectly right or wrong is irrelevant to me is there it's not a mystery it's it's not a secret oh right? no the amount no. of books ted talks um experts and, and 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 fascinating people like yourself are are out there you know it's and if my company is not offering leadership okay fine they suck at it but i'm getting exposed to it daily the content on leadership is is overbearing yet with that uh, volume of, of knowledge, Alex, on leadership, there's now this massive group that won't even pass the f- introductions of half these books. And they're doing so many things wrong. And I just sit there and I'm thinking, right. are, you know, you're clearly not reading or watching or whatever. Okay, why are you not doing it? Is it is it a power? Is it a psychology of power ideology? Is it ego? Given your expertise in the neuroscience area and the emotional... Would you be able to answer that question? Is there a reason there, there's such a major gap between the literature and knowledge of leadership, and yet there's so many bad managers and bosses and et cetera? Yeah, I think I think it has to do with our educational system and that people, people first of all, uh, uh, okay, so there are a lot of different ways of looking at the problem. One is uh, the definition of a legitimate hierarchy is where the people at the top are the best, the brightest, and serve the most people. And so when you get promoted in a legitimate hierarchy, it's because you ha- you are smarter, you're a better leader, you worked harder, you've developed yourself, and, so, and people will look up to you and respect you. And they know that because you are at the top, you have mastered the skills necessary to lead them and keep them safe. That's the legitimate hierarchy. How many legitimate hierarchies do you really know? None. Mm-hmm. Zero. It's all based on patronage and scratching your back and networking and BS. And mm-hmm. so, so we have all these illegitimate hierarchies out there where the worst rises up. If you're a good schmoozer or you're a take-no-prisoners kind of person where you, you have no ethics and no morality and you're willing to do anything, shoot anybody, do whatever it takes to get to the top. Or the worst, you're just a sales guy, a great sales guy. Yeah, it was a great sales guy and so everybody promoted because Joe was a really nice guy. And he becomes a sales manager and then VP of sales and they don't know what else to do. So they know this guy. So he becomes the CEO and completely screws yeah. the shareholders. I mean, and that's just the way it is. And it's just it's because of ignorance, laziness and greed, primarily. Ignorance, yeah. laziness and greed. And I've seen that firsthand. And it's uh, I had a conversation, um, the professor, uh, Dr. Eddie Obingham, last week in episodes, he was saying something fascinating about, you know, ask me already, what inspires you? Typically, when you follow someone, what is the reasons you follow them? And it's, right. you know, it's a very standard common sense qu- answers. It's, you know, they, they, uh, they motivate me, you know, they provide something that I can learn. And it's those basic answers. And I That's think right. if you ask any leader, you know, what would inspire, what would make you follow right. someone, you would say inspiration, motivation, et cetera. Yet when it comes down to the executing, executing of it, when they're leading their people, it's, they just do everything opposite of that. You know, they, right. they know that how they would follow it, uh, someone yet. For someone well, to follow them, they're thinking, nah, I'm, I'm at the top, Doug, so you're going to follow me. Okay? Right. And that's about it. So, so there's another problem. And is, that is that they know the what, but they don't know the how. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. So Covey in his book, uh, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mm-hmm. he spends 26 pages talking about the importance of listening. But not one word in that 26 pages is devoted to how to listen. Wow. And that's what I see in all these leadership books. It's all about the what. This is what you should do. Good leaders do this, and this is what you should do. But nobody tells you exactly how to do it. 
So exactly. Yeah. So what does it mean when I say provide focus, direction, and safety? What does all that mean? How do you provide focus to a group? What do you do? What are the skills that you need to have in order to pro provide focus? What are the skills that you need to have to provide direction? What are the specific skills you have to have to provide psychological safety? And it turns out there's a list of about 50 or 60 different skills that you need to have to do all those three things, all of which are teachable skills, learnable skills. But they're not taught. Yeah. And I think, you know, from that, I'm thinking about books, it's probably from a business perspective. They don't, the more they, they specify, they feel like they're specifying their uh, audience too much. So they probably want to keep it broad for a reason and keep it on the what, because as soon as they go into the how, they might niche down to, because one of the biggest issues with leadership books I had when I first started reading was practicality. You know, I'm, if I'm graduating college and, and I'm starting entry level at somewhere and I still want to be a leader um, or, you know, I become a, a sales manager at a startup. You know, some of these books, it's talking about examples from YouTube and Netflix and it's all great. I, I love to see that, but it's like, come on, like, how am I supposed to take what Sheryl Sandberg did at Facebook and apply it uh, to a startup uh, right. events company, you know, for example. Right. So the practicality is what annoys me. The that's most. right. And that's, that's the, that's the how knowing what the how is. The other problem is that, I mean, this is, again, is where the military is a great model. They take, they'll take 18 and 19 year olds who are, who enlist to become uh, soldiers and they start teaching them the basic leadership from the very beginning. They learn how to lead themselves. Then they learn how to lead one or two guys, other soldiers. Then as they get older, maybe they get to 20, maybe they make it up to sergeant and they go through the, the NCO ranks and, they, and each rank of NCO, they learn more about leadership and how to lead a larger group in a more complex environment. And officer training is the same way. I mean, you come out, you go to officer training school or you go to one of the military academies and you come out as a ensign or a second lieutenant and you're only responsible for a small group of people, 10 or 15 people, you know, and, and you're a manager. You're learning to manage, you're learning to lead until you get older, you get more experience. And then maybe you go to captain. Now you're in charge of 100 people. And then you, you go from captain the major and, and as you go up the ranks you become responsible right. for leading more and more people but you do that your your responsibility increases as you mature and you learn and you gain experience and you get more training an 18 year old or i would even argue that a 27 year old 27 year old who's doing a startup is not competent to lead a large complex organization mm -hmm. barely barely competent to manage a 10 person organization and that's if the right. person has taken the time to study leadership which most most entrepreneurs haven't done yeah well and so what's sad is for that 27 year old even if he or she has an interest in in learning how to do it as we just discussed some of these books won't give that route yeah. because they talk about the what and then the examples are all right youtube and google and ibm and it's all right. great like i said it's inspirational and i don't mind reading it but then again the next day when i wake up and how am I going to uh, apply this That's right. to my organization? And there's been a few books out there I love personally, like Radical Candor is one of my favorite ones that I was able to apply as a manager. And besides that, and, and it's funny, that book, of course, is not even that popular. And I just shake my head thinking there's only one book that I've read that right. has I've been able to apply the next day. Yeah, it's not even one of the well-known ones. So, right. yeah, yeah, hopefully we get, you know more of that practicality into it. And then I think it'll appeal more people uh, in, in millennials and, and Gen Z's and et cetera. But as long as, and I hate to use him as an example, but uh, the John Maxwell's of the world and no disrespect to him, he's a pioneer, but it, it just seems like as, as long as they stick around and their content keeps coming out, it's this broad brush of right. leadership that's right. defined 40 years ago. And it's right. like, yeah, well, here's the other, here's the other problem. For the younger generations have, have really are really at a disadvantage, in my opinion, because I think our educational system here in the US has really degraded badly in the last 40 years for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, I, t I teach law. I'm the chairman of the Board of Trustees of our law school. And I know that people coming into our law school are functionally illiterate. And this is true, ju just not in our law school, but in every law school across the country has the same problem. Mm -hmm. that young people are not prepared for the intellectual rigors of law school. We it, it, we, they can barely write a sentence or a paragraph. And so if you, let's just assume, and you know, of course the people going to law school or med school are the, you know, there's the more that tend to be the brighter people, but let's just suppose you're more of an average student. Mm -hmm. You haven't learned how to do critical thinking. You haven't learned how to 
problem solve. You haven't learned the basic skills necessary to teach yourself more esoteric stuff like leadership skills. And you probably haven't been motivated to learn how to learn. And so, so people are, young people are just not naturally going to seek out mentors or programs or coaching where they can, they can get some help learning this stuff because it's not in their blood. They haven't been trained on how to teach themselves. Now, I'm, I'm, this is a broad brush. There are some who, are, of course, go against the grain. But I can tell you from my observation that it are, because they have not been properly trained starting in grade school, they don't know how to learn. And they don't understand the importance of knowing how to learn. And so, therefore, they don't have the skill set to go out and learn leadership skills because they don't know how to learn in the first place. And you're essentially saying the format of standard schooling, like the history class, science class, yeah. math class, et cetera, you're saying that is the issue? Yeah. Yeah. What would you propose to be? I mean, what ideally you would say switch those classes out more or include more classes around coaching and leadership? And well, no, life. I think at the basic level, what I would do is I'd start paying teachers $250,000 a year. I'm with that. And I'd, I'd also get rid of the unions and fire teachers who are ineffective and hire teachers who are effective and bonus teachers who are effective mm-hmm. and fire the ones that aren't. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not totally anti-union, but one of the problems with the unions is that it's overprotective of poor teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and that it, all that does is push the problem down the road. But you... You know, you right now, let's at a local at a California State University, you're down in Mission Viejo, San Diego State's a little further south than you are. But but so guess who guess who guess who goes into the teacher programs? The bottom half of the class. Uh, Yeah. You know why? Because there is a demand for teachers. It's not it's not particularly rigorous. It's not difficult to become a teacher. It, there's no huge barrier to entry. You got to have an un, you get an undergraduate degree, and then you do a year of teacher training and get your teaching credential, and you're good to go. Yeah, it doesn't take much to become a teacher. Not like a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or an architect or other professions. Have an important job, as you mentioned. I mean, you're, it's critical. You're young minds, it's critical. It's critical. So part of the problem we have is that is that our priorities are backwards in terms of how we compensate some of the most important people on the planet, the people that are teaching our kids. And as a result, and of course, we don't we under-resource our schools. California used to be the highest per capita spending per kid. Now it's 49th in the nation per capita spending per kid. And it shows. It yeah, shows. Wow. And I'm just thinking, you know, if I've ever had a good teacher, I remember them. I remember them uh, for, right. for my whole life, and I probably will. It's amazing. Obviously, if you have a bad teacher, you you you'll never think of them again. That's right. They really do have that impact. That's it's, right. It's, uh, That's right. And so, so when we're talking about leadership, you know, we've got to get back to foundational problems, which is leadership takes you have to have the ability to learn. And in an in an environment where leadership, you are not given leadership training, where you have to go out and be motivated and ambitious enough to seek out your own training, you have to have that motivation. And if you don't have the curiosity and imagination and critical thinking skills that a good education provides you, it's not even going to occur to you to go learn about leadership. Yeah. And so and then, you end up in a, you, you yeah. end up in an organization. You get promoted because of longevity and because you haven't screwed up too badly. And, you know, you go, you go as high as you go. And then, you know, people below you are miserable. I hate that system. And you know what industry does it the worst is the healthcare system. My sister works at a hospital. She's been there for, God, 12 years. And I think her promotion, her latest promotion was stalled or or she missed out on it because someone else was there 22 years, you know, and it's and I, and I asked her, I was like, well, you know, you know, she probably, you know, was she performing better? Was there any metric besides just how long she's been there that's that's remotely evaluated? And she said, no, it doesn't matter. Right. I can't say anything. No matter how effective I've been as a leader, and as a supervisor, whatever, it doesn't matter. They just go off of the most, it just seems like we're such advanced species, yet we go to the most simple thing. Who's well, been think about here it. longer? And think just, about it. I mean, HR people, I got, another, I got a big beef with HR people generally, but what's the easiest way to make a determination of who's going to be, of how to choose a leader, or how to make a promotion? A lazy route, right? Yeah, That's a lazy go. route, of course. Yeah. It's a lazy route. And so that's, that's what people, they follow the path of least resistance. Yeah. And then thinking back to you know, when I went to high school, if I didn't play 
uh, sports, I, if I didn't play high school basketball, I honestly, I don't know where I would be in life. And it, bl- it it's blows me away that so many kids, you know, didn't play sports. And I always wonder, you know, you're not getting the motivation from your teachers that I know, because I was in those same classes and you're not playing sports and you probably caught with the wrong crowd and you just don't know where to search. Or you, and, or you and, stick uh, in your head in front of a game ca- com- console for, oh, for yeah. 10 years and all you do is game if, and, and yeah. you develop no skills. Yeah, hopefully we see we see a change in that front because as you mentioned a keyword there uh, that I liked a lot it's it's, it's critical and there's no other word to describe it. Um, Doug, you mentioned that we all have this hidden genius. I'm curious, what is it specifically, and why is it hidden? <laughs> well, we already talked about it a little bit. Our hidden genius are our emotions, and it's hidden because we live in a culture and a society that essentially privileges rationality over emotions when really, as I said before, we're 98% emotional and 2% rational. And here's the thing, the people that the most successful people in the world are the ones who have been able to master emotional competency so that they can be in any kind of situation, good or bad, and always be calm, always know what to say, always know how to say it, and always say the right thing in the moment. They know how to avoid making emotional decisions. They know how to avoid the problems of cognitive bias, decision-making, and they understand their own, they understand themselves because they have emotional self-awareness and they understand even when they get upset, how to regulate themselves. And they most importantly have developed the skills of cognitive and affective empathy, which allows them to understand and predict with great accuracy the, the actions and behaviors of other people. Um, that's the hidden genius. But here's the thing. We're not taught how to unlock this genius. In fact, we're told, as I said before, we're told from a very young age that emotions are bad, emotions are evil. Don't cry, don't be a sissy, don't be a girly girler, don't be a drama queen, uh, and whatever it might be. And we're told to do exactly the opposite. I, I was talking with one of my students that I work with, who's a pastor at a church in North Haven, Connecticut, mm-hmm. last or two nights ago. And he told me the story of this young couple that he's counseling, he's gonna marry him. And he's taught them how to listen to each other's emotions. But the, but the kid, the boy, the young man is having real problems with that because they said, wait a minute, I've been taught as a man that I can't have emotions, that I can't talk about emotions, that I, and this is a, he's a, he's a young black man. I've been told that to be a man, I, ha- I have to, I can't, I can't talk about emotions. Emotions are bad. Emotions are evil. Emotions make me weak. Mm-hmm. And his fiance is telling him, no, 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 it's emotions are what makes you who you are. And, and, and the pastor is so cool. He said, he said, you don't have to be, the only image you have to meet is the image that you and your fiance have. You need to be there for her. Everything else is just wrong. And he was teaching him how to affect label and do all these other skills that I've taught him. But that's so true. I mean, so, so we are not only are we not taught how to unlock our hidden genius, we're actually actively discouraged from unlocking our hidden genius. And here's the thing that's really cool. When you learn how to unlock your hidden genius, your whole life transforms. I mean, it becomes, it's a completely, you're saying, you say to yourself, why didn't I have these skills 20 years ago? Of course, they didn't exist 20 years ago, but still, you see things and, and act in ways and see people in a completely different light. So if I see somebody who's really angry, I don't see somebody who's being a jerk. I don't see somebody who's being irrational. I see somebody who's having an emotional experience in that moment. And that emotional experience is incre- is totally predictable. As human beings, we have very, very narrow, uh, a very, very narrow repertoire of behavior, emotional behavior. And once you learn that repertoire, and once you begin to understand and know what to look for, what looks like chaos to most people is, inc- is very predictable and very normal and very, very easy to deal with. <clears throat> and if you unlock that hidden genius, <clears throat> You become powerful. You become respected. You become, you're a person of influence. You're a person people will listen to. You're going to be the leader that everybody wants to follow because you have mastery over yourself. And it's not about rationality. It's about emotions. And if you look around, the very best leaders are the ones who have emotional mastery. And they, they got it somehow. 
they weren't probably weren't taught. They probably learned it by trial and error. Uh, and, and they're the ones that people will follow. And that's the hidden genius. I love it. That, that's beautiful. And the way you, the way you described how you view someone that is angry, I think that's, that's the biggest <clears throat> challenge and, and difference. And when I see someone angry, I immediately think what you just mentioned, you know, they're being irrational and I, I start judging them. And the way you said it, and there's, you know, full comfort in your saying they're just having an emotional experience. And I think, would you say then, if someone's listening to this, and, and they want to not only unlock their hidden genius, but they really want to take the steps into understanding and being aware that we're 98% emotional, not just saying it, what can they do tomorrow? Well, that's a nice entree for me to plug myself, huh? <laughs> so, so I have two courses that I've just released in the last couple of months. One is called Developing Emotional Competency, and the other one is called uh, Advanced Emotional Competency. Uh, these courses are each under $200. Uh, they're worth about 10 times that amount. And that's where, if people really want to get this stuff, that's where they can do that. And to, get, and to do that, just go to my website, uh, dougnoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. And on the homepage, you'll see there are five, five or six questions. What it, and it basically, what are you looking for here? And click down to the one I want to develop my emotional competency. Click on that, and it'll take you to the courses, and you can sign up. That's step number one. Step number two, uh, if, if you're more specifically interested in learning how to calm an angry person, then you probably want to get a copy of my book, my fourth book, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. And that, again, you can find on my website, or if you don't want to go to my website, you can go to Amazon or any of the usual places. The book was published by Simon & Schuster, so it's available everywhere. And finally, if you are two other options, uh, I do weekly coaching, group coaching sessions. And if you are interested in learning more about that, email me at doug at dougnoll.com, and I'll send you the information on that. And probably more important to me is if, listening to this program, this, what I talk about resonates with you. I want you to start doing what I'm doing and I will teach you how to teach this material. And part of what I think one of the functions of leadership is teaching. And I tell all the leaders that I work with, you must be teaching two levels down, not to the people that are reporting to you, but to the people that report to them. Those are the people you've got to be teaching and training. And so learning these skills and teaching two levels down is the way that you become a leader that everybody wants to follow. And so I will program set up for teaching people how to do this stuff. And anybody who's interested can email me and I'm happy to talk to them. And I'm a one-man shop. I don't have a huge entourage. So I answer all my own emails. Well, that's great. Well, Doug, listen, this is this has been great. Uh, you Every conversation I try to leave with one thing, you gave me multiple things to think about. So this has been uh, super great for me. You made my day. And uh, <laughs> thank I hope you. To, you really did. Yeah, you really did. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend. And I really, really hope to catch up with you very soon. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I really, really appreciate your support. If you want to learn more, please visit leadershipev.com. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at rdg at leadershipev.com. That's A-R-D-I-G at leadershipev.com. Thank you and see you soon. And just ran a long distance.